Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. On the line with us is Katrina Vandenhuvel, the editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine, thenation.com. Of course, the website, her Twitter handle is Katrina Nation or at The Nation. And she has a new op-ed out in The Washington Post titled The 2010s Were a Decade of Imperial Overreach and Trump is Making It Worse, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Wanted to get her on to discuss. Katrina, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's been a long time. Good to hear your voice. Back at you. Back at you. You know, we just finished this decade, and, you know, I I realize, you know, technically, I suppose the new decade starts, you know, next year, but that's not how history looks at it, you know. So we're now in the 2020s. you, You define the 2010s as a decade of imperial overreach. What does that mean? It means that what, you know, in the focus on Trump and this idea that he was an isolationist, we lose sight of, first of all, that he's deployed troops to Saudi Arabia, he's deployed troops around the world, he's uh, betrayed his promises about ending endless wars. That's today's news in many ways. But we also, you know, need to understand that President Obama, of course, he did negotiate the Iran nuclear deal. He negotiated normalization with Cuba, which tragically is under siege. But he, you know, he did send more drones out. He intensified the drone warfare. We did regime change in Libya, participated in regime change in Syria with the terrible destabilization of Europe we're witnessing with displacement of people and refugee crises. And the Cold War, the Cold War against Russia and against China, intensified under Obama. And we now confront, Tom, it seems to me sitting here today, the possibility of a three-front Cold War In 2018, the national security strategy of this country identified Russia and China as our greatest adversaries, downplayed, downgraded counterterrorism. But with this administration's policy of, quote, maximum pressure on Iran, we could be confronting a third front in these Cold Wars. And I think it's very dangerous for our security. Expansion is not prudent. It's not constructive. It doesn't expand our security. More and more Americans, I believe, are seeing the folly of endless war, and more polls show that Americans don't seek retrenchment. They're not isolationists. They want a different kind of engagement with the world and seek jobs, seek funds to rebuild this country for health care, for education. 
So I, I think it's an inflection point coming out of the uh, 2010 to 2020. But what a turbulent last nine, ten days to begin to think anew about what America's role in the world could be. Yeah, it really and truly is. I have been unable in looking back over history to find any examples of times when blockades or barricades or you know, economic punishment, essentially, the sanctions like uh, Trump is trying to ramp up now on Iran. We've had sh- sanctions against Russia going for a long time. We've had sanctions against Cuba that go all the way back to 1959. Venezuela. Yeah, Venezuela. I have never, I cannot recall, and I've been on this planet a long time, I can't recall a single time when any country in response to any other country's sanctions. I mean, you had Eastern European countries that were under the thumb of the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union who would still, you know, uh, react badly to attempts at sanctions. Have sanctions ever worked? And if they haven't, why do we keep using them? That requires a more knowledgeable historian, if I might, than you or me. But as we witness the sanctions-happy Congress, the sanctions happy administration of Donald Trump and, to a certain extent, Barack Obama, I believe that sanctions have just intensified, strengthened nationalism in many countries. You certainly see that in Iran, where this maximum pressure, so clearly designed to use sanctions to affect regime change, is failing. And in Venezuela, it simply brought misery to a country. And you can argue that it took Several, you know, it takes different factors to bring the kind of humanitarian disaster to a country as we're witnessing in Venezuela. But U.S. sanctions have clearly played a role. And the other thing, Tom, is it often, almost always hurts ordinary people. It doesn't hurt the elites who know how to protect themselves. I think we need to think and really think hard about why we're in this sanctions happy, sanctions trigger moment. Of course, better than outright military conflict, but sanctions, of peop- as people have said, you've heard this, Tom, it's another form of warfare. Mm-hmm. So I, I really, I think it's time to think anew. I will say that regime change needs to be exposed for the disaster, the kind of, you know, the militaristic disaster, uh, immoral, the violations of international law, that, you know, this country has perpetrated against countries. It's, you know, a measure of how far we've lost a sense of bearings as a nation that people cheer the assassination of, of however an odious figure. But we've been involved in the assassination business for years, Tom. You know that. I mean, mm-hmm. people, your listeners should go back to the Church Committee of 1975, even before then. But it's now so brazen and blatant and open and discussed on nightly cable shows that I think we are at risk of losing our moral moorings. But even more than that, if you believe in a pragmatic, constructive foreign policy, national security policy that makes this country more secure, we're losing that. Yeah, this stuff has been has been normalized. In your, Could uh, I say one thing, Tom? I mean, please. you're a media watcher. Right. Well, first of all, as we sit here and talk today, I think it's very, very positive and healthy that there are about 350 protests going on around the country. No more war with Iran. Mm -hmm. Again, it shows people in motion, people waking up 
to understand they need to protest. I think it's very important that in the last months, Congress has reasserted its role in matters of war and peace. It was not hopeful at the end of last year with the National Defense Authorization Act that I believe only 41 Democrats voted against it. Mm. And within it, as you know, there was a provision which uh, Representative Rokhana and Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, have brought out again today with legislation to not permit the funding of any military action against Iran. Right. Ilan Although, Omar, Barbara, Barbara Lee are again working to revoke the 2001-2 authorization to use military force, which has been used wrongly, brazenly, since 2001 as a cover for intervention in countries which had nothing to do with 9-11. Right. So we, I think these are good signs of Congress reasserting its role. It will take more. And there is, of course, the danger that, you know, you don't want just process. You want a substantive role by Congress. Right. And we've seen the results of regime change now. In fact, you could argue that the that the current state of Iraq and Iran are both the result of, regi- of regime change that we did back in the 1950s, overthrowing 50s. elected governments. And this has just been U.S. policy for a long, long time. And it more often, I think, bites us on the butt than, than doesn't. You also write in your op-ed in The Washington Post that the encirclement of Russia with U.S. and NATO forces as part of a strategy to weaken Russia economically and politically might not be such a good idea. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, you know, it's gone from encirclement, Tom, to, and deterrence to a more aggressive posture. It is highly dangerous that NATO, a vehicle, by the way, which should not have been expanded after the end of the first, second Cold War, after the end of the Soviet Union, is sitting on Russia's border. The epicenter used to be Germany, now it's the Balkans or the Baltics. And I think that we don't need to be best friends with Russia, okay? But we need sober realism about a working relationship with Russia, which, by the way, country played an important role in negotiating the Iran nuclear deal. But we are confronting the breakdown of an arms control structure, Tom, Beginning in 2002, when John Bolton, as an advisor to George W. Bush, pushed to repeal the anti-ballistic missile treaty, it was. We've seen now the end of the Intermediate Nuclear Range Force Agreement, the INF, and we're on the cusp of the end of START. It would be important to fight for an extension of START for 10 years. It's up in the next few months for renewal. But, Tom, as these nuclear pillars, nuclear security pillars, crumble, It is extraordinarily dangerous in ways I don't think people have focused on enough. To put it back together again is very tough. Russia's announced it has this hypersonic missile. Let's negotiate. Yeah, well, Trump announced that we have one, that we're actually, he said we're building them. Now, everybody knew that we were experimenting. We don't want an arms. Arms races doesn't help security. Yeah. And it loots the money needed to rebuild countries, to provide people with jobs, and it is not about real security. We did an interesting piece a few days ago. Joe Sirensoni of Plowshares Foundation, Guy Saperstein, commissioned several polls showing Americans are deeply concerned about America's nuclear policy stance. And they're also committed to more funding for jobs and health care and education and less for a bloated defense budget, which is higher than it was during the Reagan years, during the Korean War, at other times in our history. You know that the central challenge, and we haven't even talked about the crisis in Australia, the existential crisis of climate, that's not going to be met 
by military force. That needs and demands other solutions and resolutions. So I think the nuclear peace alone should lead America back to understanding we need sober, realistic relationship with Russia and with China. The pivot to China under Obama was militaristic, and we need a different approach, Tom. Yeah, I'm with you. It's a brilliant op-ed. The 2010s were a decade of imperial overreach. Trump is making it worse by Katrina Vandenhoevel in The Washington Post. Uh, Of course, she's the uh, editorial director and publisher of The Nation, thenation.com. Katrina, thank you for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. It's great talking with you. And please uh, give my very best to Stephen as well. Oh, I will. Okay, great talking with you. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. This is from the introduction titled In Putin's Footsteps. On New Year's Eve 1999, journalists in the Russian president's press pool had a feeling that things were going to change. They were right. The feeble and aging Boris Yeltsin, who could barely board a plane or stand for a 15-minute press conference, was about to deliver his end-of-the-year address in which he resigned and ceded power to his prime minister and hand-picked successor, Vladimir Putin. Once head of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the post-communist democratic version of the dreaded KGB, Putin was indeed an unusual choice, having served as the head of the government for only a few months. But the 48-year-old ex-spy, who had become the youngest Kremlin leader since the Soviet Union's founders, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, had a quiet energy that seemed boundless, as boundless as the geographic expanses contained within Russia's 11, yes, 11 time zones. After taking over from Yeltsin as acting president on the first day of the new millennium, and after winning by a landslide presidential elections three months later, Putin, in the year to come, held over a dozen press conferences and traveled to almost two dozen countries and at least a quarter of Russia's 89 regions, which are spread out over 11 time zones. Altogether, he was seen in public and on television more often than Yeltsin during most of his eight-year presidency. Suddenly, the press had something to report. The news stories were no longer those of Yeltsin's Russia, which was perceived both at home and abroad as weak, insignificant, and a corrupt boogeyman reeling from his Cold War defeat. These were stories of an enigmatic young technocrat tirelessly crisscrossing the country and meeting with workers, farmers, and cultural figures, attending theater galas and factory openings. All that uplifting travel, Russia was starving for the Kremlin's attention, connected Putin to ordinary people and gave him the idea of delivering a rousing New Year's Eve televised address to the nation. Standing before the Kremlin's Spassky Tower just before the giant bells rang in the year 2001, under starry winter skies in front of a large, snow-dusted Christmas tree, he pledged to counter the negativity of the post-Soviet decade and set the country on a new positive course. And this he did. In his address, the ardent young leader looked both charming and in charge when he spoke of Russia's great future, heroic past, and enduring spirit. Putin had often appeared a reserved technocrat, but soon he would demonstrate a talent for finding opportunities to impress the heartland. He knew the best way to get to people's hearts, showing them that his priority was returning Russia to the world stage as a major power of formidable dimensions. Originally, he had an even bolder plan for his New Year's address, and he had run it by journalists in his press pool during one of his trips around Russia. Without a hint of doubt in his voice, Putin told them that, quote, Russia is an enormous country, a great country. We need to remember that our strength is our size. What if I were to travel through Russia's limitless land in one night through all of its 11 time zones, stopping in each one at midnight local time to record a New Year's message to show our nation's greatness, our richness, 
the diversity of our mother Russia, our unity, and our worth. Even though Russia's time zones are exaggerated in number, there should be only seven, according to generally accepted geographic markers of Greenwich Mean Time. It's a 24-hour cycle, also called UTC. Maintaining them is not only a political matter, it is reflective of the national identity, state power, and international influence. Russia has 11 time zones more than any other country, and that, as Russians would have it, bespeaks its status in a way no one can deny. Often the time that appears on a nation's iconic clock, Big Ben in the United Kingdom, for example, or those daunting dials on the Spassky Tower in Russia's case, is a subtle way of representing where power lies. In Russia, every time zone is first referred to in relation to MSK, Moscow Standard Time, with UTC only following. Moreover, many countries don't even adhere to the 24-hour GMT UTC's neat meridians. China's huge landmass should straddle five different time zones, yet operates according to just one. Inhabitants of western China, if they follow their clocks, have dark mornings and light evenings. But nobody doubts that only the Beijing time matters. When Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela in 1999, he created a new time zone that would set Venezuela 30 minutes apart from neighboring countries. That was his way of letting the world know that Venezuela was striking out on its own. But Putin's idea of showcasing his country's temporal and geographic diversity in just one night was certainly unique, and it accorded with his plans to return Russia to its lost great power status. It also sprung from what Putin knew Russians expect of their leader, something close to godlike status. Keen on creating a leader's image steeped in tradition, history, and mythology often associated with the uniqueness of the Russian soul, spiritual endurance, persevering patience, belief in miracles, and material sacrifice. He wanted to be seen as the dead morose, the granddad Frost, the Russian Santa Claus, bearing gifts of renewed national importance and self-confidence. Capitalizing on Russia's size, 6,000 miles from east to west, Putin hoped to begin restoring his country's grandeur, once czarist, then Soviet, and now Russian. The idea was bold and beautiful, but unfortunately, unrealizable. The book In Putin's Footsteps by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. Hey, want to make yourself look so much younger that your phone won't recognize you? Uh, maybe not quite that far, but with every passing year, we all do look older. And that's all now changed thanks to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Just apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within minutes, voila, new younger you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Iran shot down this plane. 167 people are dead because somebody in Iran was trigger happy or nervous or, you know, whatever. 
Why was Iran pointing missiles at the sky? Because Donald Trump had assassinated Soleimani. Donald Trump created the environment in which an accident happened and 167 people died. I mean, if you walk into a bank and pull out a gun and say, okay, this is a stick-up, and a guy standing in line has a heart attack and falls over and dies, or let's be a little, a little more direct, and a guy standing by a window says, oh my God, I got to get out of here, and tries to jump out the window, and, the, and as he's jumping out the window, the glass slashes his neck and kills him, and, he, and you know, he, he bleeds out on the street. You, as the bank robber, even though you didn't say a word to that guy, could be held legally responsible in part for his death. So I'm just not seeing any discussion in the media of Trump's culpability or the Trump administration's culpability in the death of these people in this commercial jetliner. So anyhow, your thoughts and calls. Paul in Woodenville, Washington, you wanted to riff on this a bit? What you were saying about Trump's culpability in what happened to the people on the airliner mm -hmm. and what that really uh, is in law that would be referred to as felony murder and that is the death of a an innocent person in the commission of a felony mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that the person the, the criminal have to actually kill the the person who dies right it's just if the person dies in the commission of the crime or afterwards uh, in as your example of, of a bank robbery. Yeah, the result of it, right. And, and actually, for instance, in your example of a bank robbery, if the bank guard were to draw his weapon to protect the bank and fire it and hit an innocent person and kill him, the bank robber is actually liable for that. That's a felony murder on the, because the bank robber is the one who started the incident. Right. He created the situation in which the death was more likely to occur. Correct. And that's what Trump did here. So, I mean, can you imagine if this was Obama? I mean, you know, it's, oh, yeah. I mean, they, they would be, they would be talking about putting him in jail. I mean, it's just incredible. Okay, Paul, thanks a lot for the comments. That's spot on. Margaret in Santa Barbara, California. Hey, Margaret, what's on your mind? Hi. Yes, I was going to suggest that people read, uh, tune into the CBC reports about the Canadians killed. There were 138 people headed for Canada. 64, I guess, were citizens, but these were primarily students, faculty. I mean, and if you read all of the universities across Canada affected by the loss of these people, it's just absolutely tragic. I mean, I can right. barely talk. These, these um, were ex exchange students, and were no, they... No, I mean, many people, these were, many of them were Canadian, Ar Iranian Canadians, uh -huh. and then there were non-Canadian citizens who were students and faculty also hmm. returning from holiday in Iran. Uh -huh. So, so it wasn't that they were coming back, it, was, it wasn't that they were leaving Iran because they had been advised this uh, region is going to get hot, you better get out of Iran. That would no, be no, the no. And, and I mean, it's people who live in Canada mm. and went there for holiday. And one of the issues is that because of sanctions, there are no direct flights from Iran to Canada, so they have to do these circuitous routes and can't even come through the United States because of... Uh, sanctions and so and this was the least expensive of the flights mm, yeah
fascinating stuff. You know, we'll see how this all shakes out. Uh, but I really recommend uh, reading CBC reports, which you'll get more information on the Canadian right. connection. Right. Joy in North Fork Valley, Colorado. Hey, Joy, what's up? Hi, Tom. Well, several things. One, I didn't hear you mention Saddam Hussein when you were rattling off all the many people that uh, the U.S. government has uh, murdered and assassinated. All right. I wanted to add him in. And this Soleimani, it's like shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue if he gets away with this. He should be impeached. Another article of impeachment. I also wanted to say thank you so much for the science revolution stuff that you put up. That, yes, meat is the new tobacco. It kills us, kills the animals, kills the planet. And I think that people are waking up. It was my New Year's resolution for January 1st, 1987. No more animal products. And it's been a marvelous, wonderful journey exciting, delightful. It's a whole story I would love to tell you. I know you don't have Wonderful. Time. Yeah, and apparently yeah. stuff like Impossible Burger and uh, Beyond Meat, the Impossible Burger at Burger King is doing really well. You know, these things are growing. So, you know, yeah, you yeah. Can... even people that want to eat it, there there are ways. So, yeah, yeah. there yeah. you go. It's, okay. It's wonderful. Tom, Joy, thanks for everything you do. You're welcome. Thank you, Thank so you much. for the call, You're, you're, a, you're a, a light in a dark tunnel. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for your kind right. words. William in uh, Caldwell, Idaho, you want to disagree with me about Soleimani? Well, I got a question for you first. Yeah, the guy's a, a, a terrorist. I don't see how you can defend him. Don't you feel... I am not defending him. I am not defending him, William. What I am saying is that Donald Trump killed him in a way and at a time that made America and the world less safe. It was stupid the way he did it. There's lots of ways. If you want to assassinate somebody, there's a, you know, a whole lot of ways the government's going to assassinate people. And this, this is simply not the best. Donald Trump did this to divert our attention away from his impeachment. Period. And yeah, as a result, uh, 167 people just died in a, in a Ukrainian airline because Donald Trump created that situation. He's got the blood of those people on his hands. No, I don't. You're a sicko. Okay. Thanks a lot, William. Got it. John in Garner, North Carolina, says, you want to disagree with me, too? Go for it. I do. Well, my, my theory is possibly the plane was going to Ukraine and possibly somebody was on the plane that had evidence against Biden Obama and Clinton in their corruption, and they took the plane down through you know, their contacts that they have throughout the world. Right. So yeah. The the international Obama Biden Clinton conspiracy. That's a good one, John. Thank you for that, Patricia in Springville, Maine. Hey, Patricia, what's up? Well, after that call, I'm all I'm speechless. Uh, <laughs> it's just I'm, yeah. You know, yeah. First, this is a. I'm a first-time caller, so uh, Thank you. bear with me. No, I'm bringing up on uh, Flight 93 on uh, 2001 in Shanksville about, you know, Cheney or whoever shooting it down. My understanding is that plane slammed into the ground, almost underground, right. that if it had been shot in the, in the sky, it would have broken up in the sky, and there would have been pieces for miles around. Yes, that's the so strongest that's the argument that, I, I, that is made, that, that it was taken down by the guys on board rather than it was taken down by a jet. And I think that that's probably the true answer. Yeah, and, and by the way, I must have forgotten that because I didn't even, didn't even remember that speculation that, you know, Cheney had something to do with with it. I, yeah, well, that came out about a month later when a member of the administration said that Cheney had issued a, an authorization to shoot planes out of oh. the sky. Okay, my the administration. It, well, that speaks for itself. Right yeah, there. but it but it doesn't it doesn't mean yeah. that, that that that's what happened. I, I you no. know you, when you look at the crash site, 
I agree with you, Patricia, that it, it probably looks more like that. You know, it was taken down well, by the guys like, aboard aboard the plane. Just like in They're Iraq, American heroes in now. Iraq, that plane they, they, in the air, it's glowing. So you know what was hit oh, yeah. in the air. So they yeah. can't say that one, you know. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call. Deb in Minneapolis is up next. Hey, hey Deb, what's on your mind? A couple years ago, right after Trump was uh, elected, he said he could uh, walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and he would suffer no consequences. Correct. Well, he said people um, would still vote for him. Right. People, I, I mean, there have been many professional people that said there were many different ways he could accomplish this same goal with Suleimani, and nobody would have ever been the wiser. Correct. But he he just went ahead and did what he just wanted to do. In essence, to me, this is his shooting someone on Fifth Avenue and getting away with it. I don't think it's that. I think what he what he was looking for. He got so much praise, and of course that motive that's one of his main motivators in life. He got so much praise for killing al Baghdadi. And, you know, he tried to spin it as something even bigger than uh, President Obama taking out Osama bin Laden, that I think he wanted that again. He wanted to kill somebody else who was viewed as a bad guy so that people would say, oh, you're, you're doing a good job, Donald. And the problem is that he picked a guy who was actually a government official rather than a non-state actor. So, you know, al-Baghdadi was not affiliated with any government. And neither was Osama bin Laden. In fact, they'd both been repudiated by their own governments. Uh, Osama bin Laden had even lost his passport, his Saudi passport. He'd been expelled from Saudi Arabia. Soleimani, on the other hand, was the number two or number three official of a sovereign government, of a sovereign country. And when you do that, when you take out a person like that, and you do it in a public way where you are not just confessing you did it, but bragging that you did it, the consequences are very different from taking out a non-state actor. And that, that's a level of subtlety or understanding that obviously is lost on the people who watch Fox News. But I, you know, most of the world knows this, and that's why literally there's not another country out there who is saying, good on you, Donald, for taking out this guy. And in they shouldn't be. Nobody should be encouraging this maniac. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Deb, thank you for the call. Charlotte in uh, Ramona, California. Hey, Charlotte, what's up? Yes, Tom. I wanted to ask you about the killing of the Iranian general. Why would whoever was responsible for giving Trump the information and, and these different options, they know he's nutty. Why would they even present that option at all? And I would think that at least one of the people giving him options would have been the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Hmm. Wouldn't they know that that option they were giving was illegal? That's a good question. I, you know, the Washington Post ran an article quoting reporters, quoting people inside the military who were involved in the decision, or in the process anyway, of giving Trump these, this list of options. And what they said, uh, what the Post said they said, was that traditionally when you present the president with a range of options at the, uh, at the least destructive level is, you know, either negotiation or do nothing at all. And at the most destructive level, there's like, you know, nuke them or something. You know, it's, it's, it's some equivalent of a nuclear option, something that is so, so bizarre, so, so over the edge that the president will look at that and go, well, we've got to come up with something in the middle here. And that increases the probability of the action that the military really wants, which is the, the center options. And that traditionally that had worked with other presidents because they were rational actors. 
but it didn't work with Donald Trump. And, and I'm guessing that the Pentagon is going to change how they provide him with military options in the future now that they know that he's perfectly willing to take the world to the edge of World War III and put all Americans in danger by taking, you know, uh, irresponsible actions like this. So, you know, your point but is real. Go ahead. How could he? How could they even give him an illegal option? Yeah. Well, that's a whole another question, and I don't have an answer for it, Charlotte. I'm sorry, but your point is really well taken. Thank you, Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how are you? I have my uh, air traffic control hat on in this call today because oh, you're I the former to controller. That, yeah, and because whenever aircraft go down. We sort of feel like we've lost somebody that's sort of in our family. Mm-hmm. And I can also tie people and tie part of this call into what we talked about United 93 earlier, where you postulated one of the two theories about United 93. And I want to just make the point that it's official that the debris field for United 93, Tom, is eight miles long. It goes from a lake, and then one mile from the actual impact or crater is one of the engines. And then, of course, you've got the... Uh, the crater and the aircraft was seen flying upside down just a few hundred feet above the ground. And then if you really want to take a look at how interesting the relationship is between the FBI and the NTSB, there's a fantastic documentary done by a very credible journalist who was run out of uh, corporate media. Uh, her name is Christina Borgeson, and it studies the whole event on TWA flight 800. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen that, Tom, and if any of your listeners have not seen that yet, you're going to probably be pretty upset. Yeah, my, right? my take on that, and I remember at the time really digging into that, was that in all probability, TWA Flight 800 was shot down by a, a missile. Uh, the Navy was doing surface-to-air missile training at the time that that plane went down, were they not? That is exactly correct, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because of the cover-up. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I think we. we sh- I I continue to believe that we shot down Flight 800. With regard to Flight 93, I haven't you know right. looked into that just, anywhere near as carefully. And but if the debris field is covers eight miles, I, that that would argue right, that Tom, the. I, I, I have I've looked into this, Tom, and we're continuing the research, and there's a very other disturbing bit of information, and that is that a, a military electronics officer reacted to somebody who testified that fluorescent lights flickered in the area of Shanksville just a few moments before they heard the big explosion, and there's a huge electromagnetic pulse that is distributed by fighter jets before they release a missile, and that is designed to knock out the air defense, the missile defense systems on the prey aircraft. So you're saying that Flight 93 might have been taken down not by a missile, but by an EMP? No, no, no. The EMP is part of a missile firing. I see. So you're you're arguing that Flight 93 was taken down by a missile? That is one of our, that is one of the avenues of research, yes. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. maybe maybe someday we'll learn. Uh, Robin, thank you yeah. for the call. And, but that doesn't in any way diminish, you know, the bravery and heroism of the people who were trying to stop the hijackers. And that's fairly well documented because a number of people were on the, apparently on the plane talking to their loved ones at the time.
Nader in San Rafael, California. Hey, Nader, thanks for watching Free Speech. Says you disagree with me about something about Eisenhower. Well, uh, Tom, as I've mentioned before, I really enjoy your show, and I very respectfully just want to point something out. You've mentioned many times that you have tremendous respect for Eisenhower and that kind of Republican ideology, but given today's events, I do really want to mention that uh, Eisenhower is really the president that is most responsible for the dysfunctional relationship between Iran and the U.S. Yeah, no, I agree with and, you. I absolutely agree with yeah. you. And that, you know, those decisions that were made in this in the mid '50s, in '54, '55, '56, when Eisenhower was president, you know, with Mr. Dulles's uh, enthusiastic assent, those decisions to take down governments, the democratically elected governments, was in retrospect crazy. I mean, and you're right, it did set up the situation. And by the way, it wasn't just there. We were doing this in Central and South America as well during the exactly. Eisenhower administration. But I want to make a connection to the, to the hostage crisis in 1979, because right. when the Islamic Revolution took over, the first thing they were worried about was another coup orchestrated by the U.S. trying to help the Shah. And that coup would have been set up and managed through the U.S. Embassy. So, and Stephen Kinzer makes this point as well in his book, All of Shaw's Men. So that is the main reason that they took the hostages. So in a way, I would say Eisenhower is, is somewhat responsible for that. Yeah. And then, you know, from there, we move on. You'll recall who was, who was Eisenhower's vice president, who was largely responsible for his po foreign policy and entirely responsible for his Cuban policy. Do you remember? Uh, no. Richard Nixon. Help me with that. Oh. Ri Richard Nixon okay. was his vice president. Richard Nixon was largely in charge of foreign policy. Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1959, and Nixon was functionally the president for about a year. But uh, Nixon was wholly responsible for the Cuba policy, the Cuba desk. And, and the, uh, thus, he planned the Bay of Pigs for 1960 to be an October surprise right. to help defeat Kennedy. And uh, right. because of weather and a few other conditions, they couldn't do it. Nader, thanks for the call. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World of the 1950s by William I. Hitchcock. This is from uh, chapter 19, page 475, about three quarters of the way through the book. Republicans of the 1950s knew how to sell a product. They pioneered the use of television advertising in politics, and at their national conventions in 1952 and 1956, they mobilized actors, dancers, acrobats, sports figures, crooners, jugglers, and sword swallowers to infuse their rather dull message of peace and prosperity with some pizzazz. In middle 1960, mid-July 1960, though, as the GOP faithful gathered in Chicago at the International Amphitheater, the same hall in which Ike and Dick had formed their political tandem eight years earlier, the convention planners were running out of ideas. A giant elephant, elephant named Koa, on loan from Louisiana, proved to be too big to amble down the aisles of the hall and had to be returned. The torchlight parade of 500 young Republicans had to be canceled due to the fire hazard of their kerosene-soaked rags. Plans to get Henry Fonda into costume as Abraham Lincoln, a role he had played woodenly in the 1939 film Young Mr. Lincoln, were scotched when Fonda turned out to be a Democrat. Half the hotel rooms in Chicago remained empty a few days before the convention. Besides an absence, absence of hoopla, 
The top Republican leaders had serious worries. A Gallup poll on the eve of the convention showed that since 1952, the Republicans had lost support among business and professional voters, white-collar workers, and farmers, three key demographic groups. And they had made no inroads among skilled and unskilled laborers who favored the Democratic Party by a ratio of four to one. President Eisenhower's personal popularity had masked serious weaknesses in the Republican Party. As the Republicans gathered in Chicago, John Kennedy, a junior senator with little international name recognition, led Nixon in the polls by four points. And uh, I should add, Nixon was the vice president, uh, Eisenhower. The press corps, bored to tears by the lack of drama in Republican ranks, worked, worked hard to breathe life into the candidacies of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller and Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who might, they earnestly hope, hoped challenge Nixon for the GOP nomination from the left and the right. The Washington Post editorial page noted that both parties inclined toward moderate nominees like Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Nixon, but cautioned that, quote, an excess of moderation can yield a pudding devoid of flavor or shape, end quote, and hoped that Gold Goldwater would add a dash of, quote, pepper to the otherwise bland old party's Chicago solemnities, end quote. Indeed, old guard supporters of the dear departed Bob Taft now had a new champion in the ruggedly handsome conservative from the desert west. It was not to be. Goldwater did not seek the nomination and backed Nixon. Rockefeller, whom most veteran Republicans distrusted for his ideological elasticity and his vanity, pressured Nixon to adopt a number of Kennedy-like platform planks on issues such as defense spending, civil rights, health insurance, and housing. Nixon, terrified that a Rockefeller boomlet might snatch away his long-sought prize, caved into these demands before meeting with Rocky in New York on July 22nd, three days before the convention opened. Rockefeller, in turn, threw his support to Nixon in a feeble gesture of party unity. In extracting concessions from Nixon on the GOP platform, though, Rockefeller managed to weaken Nixon's case that he and he alone had the toughness to confront Khrushchev on the world stage. The real challenge Nixon faced in taking the leadership of the Republican Party did not come from Goldwater or Rockefeller. It came from Eisenhower. Of course, Ike supported Nixon's presidential bid since Nixon offered the best hope of extending the Eisenhower legacy. But the distance between those two men, which had always been great, never seemed wider than in 1960. Eisenhower had become the world's most respected, most recognized, and most liked man. For all of his apparent political weaknesses and occasional lapses in his mishandling of the U-2 affair, he occupied an unassailable place in the pantheon of great figures of his time. His war service alone would have placed him on history's pedestal, but he followed that with eight years of dignified leadership of a country whose global power had reached unprecedented dimensions. When Eisenhower arrived in Chicago on July 26 to address the Republican convention, over one million Chicagoans lined the streets along his route to the Sheraton Blackstone Hotel. Shouts of joy rang through the miles of well-wishers. We like Ike signs dotted the scene along with hand-painted expressions of thanks to the old warrior. Confetti so dense that it stuck to Ike's moist and beaming face poured from the rooftops. Banners and flags draped every storefront and lampposts in a blaze of red, white, and blue. It was Ike the crowd wanted. A loudspeaker in a truck following the motorcade blared out a popular tune by the Four Knights. I love the sunshine of your smile. The president, visibly moved, told reporters outside the hotel, it's one of the finest crowds I've ever seen. 
On Tuesday evening, Senator Dirksen, famously orotund speaker in a profession known for producing magnificent windbags, came to the podium in the amphitheater to introduce the president. Few recalled that eight years earlier, Dirksen had nominated Senator Taft. Anyhow, the book is The Age of Eisenhower by Hitchcock. 2020, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Yeah, I'm glad that last caller brought up this strike on Shaleh in Yemen because there's some inconsistencies here that, I mean, I've noticed just from my, you know, my time in the intelligence community that nobody's really paying any attention to. Yeah, but let me I just fill this in, if I, if I may, Dave, for anybody who just tuned in. The Washington Post is reporting that the same day that Trump or the Trump administration executed Soleimani and, and also, you know, a, a bunch of people with him, they tried in Yemen to take out the number one guy from Iran, from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard who was working in Yemen with the people there, and they failed. And so now back to you, Dave. Well, no, this is, um, you know, showing the signs of a complex, well-thought-out operation, okay? Right. And you had a caller, you asked about assassinations and the legality of that in America. You had a caller that said he was a graduate of the War College, and he said, look, we, we attack headquarters. And I was like, I, I was thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, if this was complex and well-thought-out. Mm. You don't have to crow about killing someone. As a matter of fact, the White House is already saying the reason, um, you know, the, they, they attempted this at attack on Chalet and it failed, and they would be crowing about it if it had worked. They would be bragging, sure. you know? Sure. And this is this doesn't make any sense. I mean, all right, so 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 their pattern is is bragging about military might. Their pattern is to it, cower, cower the regime in Tehran to get them to think twice. Mm. Right? That's the pattern. But yet. Now, we, we need to think about this rationally for a second. There is almost no way they didn't know that. This is Tehran, for crying out loud. We have only been targeting Iran, the country of Iran. All right, so specifically Tehran is very important, since 1975. Then the, the, the intelligence community, Mike Lee saying that the briefing they gave was shoddy to Congress. And then they walked out. I'm like, wait a minute, I've been doing this for 25 years. You don't walk out on Congress. Right. You can give them all kinds of pat answers, right? You can give them all kinds of little answers, like, you know, that won't scare or startle the members mm -hmm. of Congress, but not answer their question directly. You come back later. Right. 
actually, because the nature of the question was, I guess, from what Mike Lee said, was will they brief Congress in the future of any well, sort the of... Well, um, the, the question specifically that, that apparently Mike Lee asked, or somebody asked, and Mike Lee was outraged it wasn't answered, was, okay, you guys killed the number two or th- number three guy in the Iranian government without the approval of Congress. Do you believe that you would need the approval of Congress to kill the number one guy to take out Khamenei? And the response that they got was, we still don't think we'd need your input. Well, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I'm not trying to, like I said, I've spent a lot of years in the intelligence community. But, but think about it this way, Tom. You um, are an advocate of uh, climate science and climate change, right? It would be like you talking to a guy about these fires and the severity of the fires in California and Oregon, like the car fire or the campfire. And then, you know, this guy you're talking to says, well, I think it was spontaneous combustion. I don't believe there was a car involved burning on So so your your bottom line, Dave, is that you don't think that the story is adding up. Now, add to that that the Wall Street Journal is reporting today that, that Donald Trump, after the strike on Soleimani, told several people that he had to do that because he was getting pressure from Republican senators. And uh, you, you wonder, you know, I mean, Giuliani has been taking money from one of these anti-Iran groups. I think it's the, it's the MEK, M-E-K. I could be wrong on that, but there's one of these anti-Iran groups that he's in deep with. And, you know, I'm wondering if they've, like, bought off some senators or, you know, I don't know. Well, if it's Mujahideen al-Khalq, which is what you're referring to, right. then that's definitely coming from Moscow. Look, this, my, my point is this, Tom, and I'm sorry to belabor stuff with you, but you know, you're, I, I love your opinion on stuff. Look, this, I think we've reached a tipping point. I think the intelligence community now sees their continuity. Their, you know, their, they see it tied to the executive branch. They don't no longer see Congress. They may even see Congress as a complete and utter obstacle. Yeah, I think I think you may be right. And this and the thing that shocked me was when Congressman Connor said that you know he had his amendment which would eliminate funding f- for any attacks on Iran, and it was fought by the Pentagon. The Pentagon came in and lobbied really, really hard against this. And I'm like, so the Pentagon wanted to be able to strike Iran without congressional approval? Why would the Pentagon want to do that? Well, you know, maybe they've been corrupted by Trump, too. I don't know. Dave, i got to run, but thanks for the call. Uh, There are certainly more questions than answers right now. And and all we're getting from Mike Pompeo with his little press conference was BS. Stick around. We'll be right back with more of your questions. Jason in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Jason, what's up? Hello. I'm good, Tom. Thank you. I contacted my two senators this morning Mm -hmm. and told them to back this War Powers Act that limits Trump. I mean, this is is bonkers. Yeah. And people in red states like you are, Jason, you've got uh, Rubio and and, uh, Rick Scott as your senators. Um, People in red states in particular need to be calling 202-225-3121, which is the main switchboard number for, for the Capitol, and telling their senators what they think about it. Or if you have a, a Republican congressperson, a member of the House of Representatives, call them as well. I mean, this is this is important stuff. Uh, Jason, thanks for the call. Jonathan in Portland, Oregon. Jonathan, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hey. So I think the single best article to understand what's going on in the world now is an article called America Escalates its democratic oil war in the Near East. It's written by economist Michael Hudson. Mm-hmm. And it simply says that <clears throat> this is not as crazy as it seems. And this is a plan that's been in the making for 50 years. And Soleimani was essentially working with Iraq to help Iraq control its oil and fend off terrorist attacks from the U.S. 
and that's why they took him out. And uh, it's in, on a larger sense, it's also about how the U.S. military is going to fight all of its wars off the books and find a way to pay for it. And this is really the only way that they can do it. But that's really what's going on in a nutshell. And it's a brilliant article. It's, it's very complex and detailed, um, mm -hmm. but I would highly recommend it. Jonathan, do you have Twitter? I have not signed up for Twitter. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll go looking for it. I've got, you know, it's linked, I got it at a link from Chris Hedges' Twitter site. Yeah, okay. So Chris Hedges just linked to it, but it's America Escalates Its Democratic Oil War by Michael Hudson. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Thank you very much. Dee in Seattle. Hey, Dee, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. It's so nice to talk to you. I just wanted to ask about... The gentleman who was killed that almost started World War III, which we're still on the cusp of, is Mr. Nawa Hamid. Yes. And he's an employee with Valiant Integrated Services. Right, and, and he's, and he's a naturalized American citizen. He was, he's an Iraqi who became a U.S. citizen and then went back to Iraq to work for this contracting company, and he was killed in the rock, rocket attack, right? I guess my point is, are we at the point where we are willing to go to World War Three because of it. Mm, I'm not sure how to phrase it. A private company. This is a private company. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, Trump used that as an excuse, but I think the real reason why Trump launched the attack that he did when he did, the way that he did, was to distract us from his impeachment. Yeah, because I was thinking, how about Otto Warmbier? Yeah, Otto Warmbier. Yeah, that's that's going to, you know, if he, if he were to drag that out, that would escalate tensions with North Korea right now. And, and frankly, Kim Jong-un is kicking Donald Trump's butt, you know, from one side of the room to the other. And uh, uh, if, he's going to have a big problem there. If you have nuclear there. weapons, you're okay in Donald Trump's book. If you're a dictator with nuclear weapons, I, let, let me just end it with this, that we were at a point that, Put it this way, how much does a Trump hotel cost in Turkey? How much does right. a Trump hotel cost in Turkey? That's right. where we're at as a government now. Yeah, I'm convinced that when Erdogan called Trump up and said, you know, abandon the Kurds in northern Syria and let us slaughter them, that he, the threat that he used was that he was going to kick Donald Trump's. Trump has two Trump Towers in, uh, exactly. in, in Turkey. And, uh, you know, and Erdogan knows it. <laughs> in fact, he was there for the inauguration of them. So, yeah, D. That's D, our new government. There you go. There you go. I, I, I can't disagree with you, D. Thank you very much for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Lowell in Salem, Oregon. This is Lowell, right? Yep, it sure is. Okay, what's on uh, your mind, Lowell? Uh, well, uh, so I, I sent you a, a tweet uh, with uh, a video of Wesley Clark describing the Project for a New American Century uh, list of countries to invade. And I wanted to show that no matter who gets in office, war with Iran is inevitable because they've decided that that's on the list. And as you recall, I called a while ago and let you know the list and how Obama got a majority of the countries on the list. So it, and Bush got started with Iraq, right. and then Obama got Syria, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and he added a couple of extraneous, you know, Yemen and Pakistan. Sure. Yeah. Well, but that was Bush the Saudis added really yeah, added yeah. that, but yeah, I get it. And this was uh, the nineteen uh, the nineteen ninety eight uh, letter to Bill Clinton from the Center for, was the Committee for American 
a new American century. Um, yeah, project for a new pro American Project, yeah. thank you very much for a new American century. PNAC. That specifically called for invasion of Iraq, of Saddam Hussein. But you're saying that their larger list, you know, I think they've been calling for war with Iran. I mean, John Bolton's been calling for war with Iran since the late 80s, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, but that list seems to be what both parties' presidents seem to be following. Yeah, well. And, you know, th this is why we need someone like Tulsi Gabbard on the stage to counter this type of narrative. Because, you know, if we don't get an anti-war voice, we're going to be at war forever. Yeah, I get that, Lowell. Thank you very much. Helen in Oakland, California. Hey, Helen, what's up? I heard on the radio, and I don't know what station because I listened to them all, that it's possible that the national emergency that precipitated the Saul money uh, hit was a plot to bomb Trump's properties. And I didn't pay attention to it until Trump made a connection and said uh, that he was going to then bomb cultural icons in Iran. Right. And I don't know if that is an emolument offense. I don't think it would be, but you're right that, and in fact, I talked about it on this program. After Trump's hit on Soleimani, I believe it was the foreign minister, Mr. Sarif, although I could be wrong, but it was one of the senior officials in the Iranian government, tweeted out a link to an article in Fortune magazine that listed all of Trump's properties around the world where they were specifically, you know, without comment. But I think it was pretty clear that what he was saying is, you know, to his people is think about this. And, you know, I was wondering out loud what that's going to do to the property values in Trump properties. I don't know. Helen, excellent question. Thank you very much. This is why we need hearings in Congress. This is the Tom Hartman program. It's absolutely why Congress needs to be able to have people from the Trump administration come in and testify as to why he had to assassinate this guy when he did. Trump Tower Istanbul opening in 2012, or actually 2013. Ivanka Trump tweeting about it in 2012. I retweeted her tweet saying, geez, isn't this coincidental? Apparently Trump is making at least $5 million a year in this licensing agreement. I'm very conflicted in some ways. I mean, I, you know, I remember Vietnam really, really well. And, and this was the, the argument that we were all making back in 2001 and 2002 when, you know, People all across the United States were saying to Bush and Cheney, no, don't invade Afghanistan. No country has ever successfully occupied Afghanistan. We've been there 20 years or nearly, and we're still losing control of it. The Taliban is making a comeback. And so now Trump is trying to, you know, buddy up with the, with the Taliban. Um, in Iraq, you know, we were saying don't invade Iraq, you know, and if you invade Iraq, you're going to turn Iraq into a client state of Iran. And sure enough, that's what happened. The first business that opened after Iraq kind of recovered a little bit from the shock of, of our destroying their country and their economy and looting their museums and, and all this other stuff was the, the, one of the first businesses that opened was the Bank of Tehran in Iraq. And, you know, so now Iraq is controlled by a, an Iranian friendly Shia you know, government for all practical purposes. 
We basically just turned the whole region on its head. And why did we do this? Because Dick Cheney wanted to sell Iraqi oil. If you go back to 1998 to the project for a new American century, you know, you can see what was going on here. They, they, you know, as Dick Cheney said, Iraq had the second largest reserve of oil in the world. Paula in Seattle. Hey, Paula, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, this is going back to your thing about troops being paid. And I okay. saw Trump. He did an, an interview with Fox. And I think it was also with Laura Ingram. I'm not sure. But he said to Saudi Arabia, well, you're a rich country. You know, you can pay. And so he said, we've gotten $1.5 billion. And I'm thinking, our troops are volunteers. And mm. how does this make them feel that they are for sale? I mean, why isn't there more outrage about this? I'm guessing that there is, in the armed services, a lot of outrage about it. But we just don't ever hear about it. Because one of the things that, if you're a soldier, you can't do is comment on politics and make public statements about political political figures and political issues. Well, why aren't the Democrats screaming about it? That's a good question. I think some of them are very, very upset. But uh, Justin Amash seems to be carrying the day, and, and, and God bless yeah. him. Paula, thanks a lot okay. for the call. Great to hear from you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.